Season two of Jason Piccolo's Protectors. Tonight, very great guest, Ron Moeller. I also have Pete Turner back in the studio to help me out because Pete's one of those kind of guys, man. He's got a great background. And whenever I try to talk spooky stuff like spy stuff, etc., I always bring Pete in because Pete's a subject matter expert. Ron has an outstanding career in the Intel community, and I'm really looking forward to hearing from him. I was going through his bio and I was just like, Damn, Ron has seen some stuff and done some stuff. So without further ado, let's bring him in. Ron, how's it going? Thank you. I'm I'm blushing from that introduction. Gosh. Oh, I was going to go down a whole laundry list of items, but uh, yeah, you've had an amazing career. And one thing I do want to start off with is kind of like backtrack to where it all began. Who is Ron? Oh, gosh. The, <laughs> the, the backstory question. You know, yeah. I, I, I can I can humorously answer it by using a quote from the Steve Martin movie, The Jerk. You know, I was born a poor black child. Yeah. But but that won't work. Um, uh, uh, my parents, uh, I'm an only child. Parents are uh, immigrants from uh, Germany. They immigrated after the war uh, legally. And uh, they met in the States and uh, got married, had me. Uh, grew up in the 60s and the 70s, uh, mostly in Oregon. Graduated from high school there. Um, my dad made some bad employment decisions. And uh, so college wasn't in the offing uh, from high school. So he basically dropped me off at the Armed Forces Recruiting Center and says, call me, what, call me when, you've got a, when you've got a contract. So uh, he dropped me off at lunchtime. So the only person there was the, uh, was the Air Force recruiter. So uh, I walked in and, you know, scheduled the ASVAB. And every Anyways, long story short, I, uh, I signed up for a general intel specialist in the Air Force and, um, you know, went to basic training uh, in the fall of 76. Uh, went to intel school in at the old Lowry Air Force Base in Denver in uh, late 76, early 77. I was the class honor graduate. I went to Berkstrom Air Force Base, another non-existent Air Force Base these days, in Austin, Texas for my first duty assignment, and then spent the next almost, I guess, 11 years, three months, and two days in the uh, in active duty in the Air Force, uh, serving in, uh, in Korea, in uh, Omaha, Nebraska, at Offutt Strategic Air Command. And then my final assignment was uh, at Scott Air Force Base east of St. Louis, uh, doing um, everything for uh, Air Force Communications Command, a little bit with 23rd Air Force, and a little bit with the old Military Airlift Command. And uh, that's where I took advantage of uh, being stable, as not just mentally, but <laughs> physically. And uh, went, to, went to school. Went to school at night, went to school uh, at lunch, went to school on the weekends. And... Um, and by the time I left the Air Force active duty in January, early January of 88, I uh, left with four college degrees. So, you know, I. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So, well, tuition assistance and, the, and I was what I was covered under the old Vietnam era GI Bill. So I, uh, you know, I, 
I couldn't afford not to go to school. You know, not to do it was uh, seemed awfully silly to me and, and my wife. So we uh, that was a conscious. Uh, you know, I did something similar when I was going uh, through the army. Uh, Neither one of uh, which really appealed to me. So I um, started reading magazine. You know, all the magazines, the Air Force Times, the Military Times, and and there was an ad. Hey, do you like to travel? Do you speak a foreign language? Do you uh, you know like to do new and cool, exciting things? And you know, send us your resume, generic Army address near Fort Meade. So I did. I got interviewed, got interviewed again, got interviewed a third time. And I be, got hired um, as a uh, MICEP, which is a long-winded acronym that stands for Military Intelligence Civilian Accepted Career Program. Pete may know that. I do. I got yeah. rejected. <laughs> okay. Hey, Ron, well, I'm just going to... got sent down to the farm for the next six months, which was an um, extraordinary uh, opportunity extraordinary experience. Um, wow. I, I learned so much about myself and, um, you know, just, it was, uh, I can't say enough good things about the school. I want to comment though. One thing, the, uh, at the time, the course was, there was the, the agency had their FTC or field training course and the, the DOD, the army and the air force and, and some Marines, um, had what we, the, the military equivalent, uh, MOTSI, M-O-T-C, Military Operations Training Course. Um, those courses now have been combined since 9-11. Um, I also want to say that classes now are in you know, a couple hundred at a, at a shot. And they, you, know, and you can figure out the math if it's a course is six months long. And, you know, there's two courses a year. Um, our, uh, our class is both the, uh, our, our M-O-T-C class and our sister F-T-C class. 30 people apiece. So um, you can see how the, uh, the effort has really uh, gone, gone up. I remember, yeah, I remember uh, MICEP, because my wife was Intel, and I remember MICEP was one of those really tough gigs to get into. And it was, it was uh, I don't know, it, it's changed a lot post-9-11, but Pete, you remember the MICEP too, right, pre-9-11? Yeah, yeah. I actually tried to do the MICEP thing. I didn't have a language, so I couldn't get in. They yeah. were into everything else I did, but they were very specific about the language. Yeah, I was lucky. I, yeah, as I mentioned, my, my parents German, so we <laughs> spoke German at home. So, you know, it was the uh, it was the easy C plus grade in high school because I was lazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like uh, language is one of those things, man. Uh, I had someone tell me, ask me today not to get off on a tangent, but they want to get into law enforcement. And they're like, well, should I go learn Mandarin? And I'm like, well, you know, it's not as easy as just going and getting a uh, Mandarin for Dummies book. Unless you're, like, really good <laughs> at the language, yeah. don't even try it, you know. Yeah. yeah no, I mean, well, the, uh, the the Army and their infinite wisdom after I graduated from the school and, and uh, I, I got assigned to a unit in the States that supported U.S. Army Central and Central Command, so mm -hmm. which was which was kind of good because uh, my my master's emphasis, my my degree was international affairs and with a minor in international business, but it was the Middle East and, and the Horn of Africa, so that was mm -hmm. like, that was a great fit. Um, but the DoD said, "Hey, we're going to send you to Arabic language school," uh. and yeah, um, so. I uh, I frequently when I hear Arabic spoken on the television or, or on 
on podcasts or you know newsreel or whatever. I uh, I suffer from AIDS, which is Arabic induced depression syndrome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because <laughs> I need told, to write that one down. <laughs> I understand about every third word, and uh, it's it's such a perishable language and perishable skill. Now, did you get to go to DLI for that? No, they sent me to uh, Foreign Service Institute in Roslyn, Virginia. Yeah, that's where my wife went for Turbo Servo uh, yeah, before the Bosnia deployment. And uh, yeah, that's that's no Monterey, California, brother. No, it was uh, it was a metro ride <laughs> to and from uh, school, and I couldn't show uh, up. It was like, hi, I'm an Army case officer. Wow, mm-hmm. you know, this is what I do because I'm with everybody else as a Foreign Service officer. They're brand new hires. Yep, and. Um, so, of course, they they sent me there with zero cover stories. So I had to, I had to be an extraordinary bullshit artist. So and, why not FSO? I'm sorry. Why not become an FSO? Like you know, army. You're like, hey, you know uh, what? Uh, you know, I, I like doing intel work. I, I yeah, I, you know, via and um. I mean, some people might, my, my, uh, my Arabic school, which, which was my first real in-depth introduction to State Department personnel and bureaucracy, and, and mm-hmm. it was, oh. uh, was uh, less than flattering. I mean, there, <laughs> there are a couple of people that I'm still in touch with, and now, of course, they know, you know, who I, who I really am. And mm-hmm. Of course, they, they have to, like, cover the, oh, I knew that all the time, you know. <laughs> but, uh, so, so post-mindset, kind of, I mean... Post language school, you're in MySEP, you're living a life. Um, then 9 11 happens, right? Oh, gosh. That, you know, well, in between that and uh, and everything, we had the Defense Human Service get created, yeah. which, was, which absolutely destroyed the entire uh, DOD human, strategic human program. Uh. And you can thank General Clapper for that. And that's the, as close to politics as I'll get on this podcast. Stop. My dog's bothering me. So. <laughs> oh, it's okay. That's that's welcome to the podcast world, man. We always have the dogs and everything else happening. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, 9-11. So I'm, uh, by this time, um, long convoluted uh, career path. The um, I'm, uh, I'm actually uh, assigned to the uh, CIA's Office of Military Affairs under the rubric of the uh, Intelligence Career Assignment Program, which is a, which is a really great program where uh, selected individuals um, go to different intelligence agencies. So you sort of get cross-pollinated from uh, your home agency to another agency. Mm-hmm. And I, I'd been actually recruited by OMA to come work with them to help revitalize their, their exercise program, participating in, in, in DOD uh, command post and field training exercises. Uh, from the intel side of that. So anyways, we were, on 9-11, we were actually um, doing an exercise with uh, JSOC and uh, State Department um, in uh, in Budapest. And um, so we all went to lunch on 9-11, and uh, we come back from lunch, and suddenly the U.S. Embassy is surrounded by uh, Hungarian armored vehicles and lots and lots of gun-toting Hungarians, and um, thank God for the little black passport. And uh, so, you know, we, we all walk in and, and we're like, and we, we go to, you know, the, the first point of entry in the, in the embassy is Marine Guard Post 1. And we ask him the Marine on duty and he's, you know, like, 
he's in battle rattle and he's like, oh my God, we're under attack. I go, say what, what? Because <laughs> you know, all the, the only radios yeah. we heard were Hungarian. So we walk in and, and they had a, a, a television in, in, the, in one of the common areas and everybody in the embassy, it, it was a mid-sized embassy staff plus the whole TDY contingent, uh, which was another 30, 40 people um, were there. And uh, while watching CNN, we got there just in time to see uh, the second aircraft crash into the other tower. And um, by this time, um, we all figured it out. So, I mean, that this was not an accident. These were deliberate attacks. So the uh, the JSOC guys, they're on a phone line back to Fort Bragg. We had a, a couple of FBI people. They were on the phone back to uh, FBI headquarters and Quantico. We were trying to get through to, to Langley. Uh, Everybody, I mean, the amount of information coming through, and none of it very uh, accurate at the, you know, you know, after in hindsight, um, was just, I mean, amazing. It, you know, there's there's bombs exploding on the mall. There's there's gunmen running around, you know, on on Pennsylvania. Yeah. I mean, you know, but it, we were, you know, we we eventually found out what you know what happened, but. The great thing is, is um, well, not great thing, but the most terrible thing um, um, was that uh, I was assigned the, the unenviable task of doing the, uh, the sit rep brief to not just the TDY personnel, but to the entire embassy staff. Oh, wow. um, I'm, I'm looking, well, can't the DAO do this, the defense attache, um, you know, the RSO, the regional security officer? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, why me? And they just all go, uh, because they were just emotional wrecks. I'm going, wow, such great psychological screening. Woo. Um, yeah, exactly. And you know what? You never know what people are going to, how people are going to handle news like that. Well, yeah. Uh, I mean, but the cool thing was, was the, the person that tasked me to do it was, uh, was Scotty Miller. At the time, Lieutenant Colonel, now four-star General Scotty Miller, hmm. who, yeah. who, I, who I stay in, in frequent touch with because... He's he's really busy, and yeah, I'm sure he is, man. But yeah, so that was, you know, that was the start of. Uh, I mean, and then, then we ended up spending a week in Budapest, um, because they didn't know what to do with us. And we'd flown in on an on an Air Force um, aircraft, uh, a, a non-tanker version of the 135 airframe, and uh, we were just so we got to relax in Budapest for a week, and the Hungarians were absolutely terrific people. They. Uh, you know, we we couldn't buy a beer to save our lives. Uh, the meals were comped pretty high. You know, I'm going. Oh, is this an ethical violation, or you know, is is that sort of excuse? It's like twenty dollars. You're good. <laughs> yeah, it was it was fun. But uh, the JSOC guys, they all took off and they uh, they uh, went down to uh, um, Tazar, and uh, then they caught a, a DOD hop uh, to back to Bragg. And, we literally thought because we deployed with all our kit, because one of the things for our uh, in this uh, this exercise thing was that we were always supposed to be ready to go real world. We thought we were going to go forward. Um, luckily, we didn't end up going forward because none of us were were really prepared. I mean, we had our personal kit, but we didn't have any weapons or any or any maps or anything. Now, what about operationally prepared though? I mean, you know, nine eleven happens. You know, granted, I, I know how to do my job, but 
in the Arab world, you know, it's just such a different thing. And first off, you know, when you explain what we do and, and, and the challenges to get there, I never went to a school that prepared me. I never pre-deployment training, never prepared me for the job that I had to do. It was more like, make sure he doesn't sexually harass anybody. Make sure he can put an IV needle in someone's <laughs> arm. And then they would literally turn me loose. You know I mean, and, and just go, okay, you know how to do your job. And I was like, well, you know, Let's hope that I do. So how prepared were you to do work in this, this new world? You know, it, it's one of those things, you know, by this time I had been uh, in the Intel career field for, gosh, 25 years. And, um, you know, if I wasn't ready now, I, I was never going to be ready. And I, uh, you know, I, I wasn't happy about it. I wasn't cheerful about it, but I... I knew I knew a lot about a lot of things, and I knew a lot about a whole or a little about a, even more things. So I, I I felt prepared. I mean, we were all going in blind, and yeah. well, not blind, but kind of like you know, whatever. I mean, we uh, you know I didn't get deployed until late January, and um, just in time to help participate in in Anaconda. So uh, I. You know the uh, the first wave of guys had gone over and and just done tremendous jobs. I mean they were a mixture of uh, Russian linguists because um, mm-hmm. the, the northern tribes they spoke a lot of Russian up there, uh, Farsi, and um, some Arabic for the uh, for the captured Al Qaeda fighters and, and the other guest fighters of the week there in, in Afghanistan. Um, the uh, yeah it was. Um, well, this was, was uh, amazing. you know, and you, I'm so glad you sent me like a huge bio of what you've done <laughs> in your career. And uh, <laughs> I don't even know where to start, but, you know, post 9-11 January, this, you know, and I like to talk to people that are different. You know, a lot of people want to avoid conflict. They want to avoid doing their jobs because, you know, that's not what they signed up for. But the 99% of us, I shouldn't say a lot of people do that, but the 99.9% of us are like, wow, we actually get to do our job. And here you are, like, you're going in, like, Anaconda. That's like the tip of the spear time still. Oh, yeah. And uh, that must have been, like, just an incredible feeling to be, like, out of everybody getting deployed here and there across the world at the time, not many people were getting put right into the fire. It, it, well, I mean, I, I didn't go up on the whale with with the guys that were trading punches and, and with the uh, with the Al Qaeda dudes, but but Ron, I want to stop you right there. You went into the unknown. Now it's a known, and now you know there's a lot of different things. But back then, you still didn't know, and back then you could still get killed. You just don't know where. Uh, well, but I do want to give you a lot of credit. You know, well, thanks. Well, that that's true because um, the um, <clears throat> it rained a lot that spring in in Afghanistan. And um, it was the most rain they'd had in quite a while. And uh, it washed away a lot of uh, dirt on, on Bagram, where, where I was temporarily sent from a cobble station. And um, the, uh, the local Afghans had been tr- walking these, these dirt paths for, for years. Well, I guess the, uh, the water eroded enough dirt away that some Afghan walking on a path literally hit a mine and blew himself up. Um, that was enjoyable not to watch. And, right. uh, yeah, it was, you know, it was, it was pretty ugly. I mean, uh, the, well, uh, 
I, I like how you mentioned Bagram because Bagram in 01 compared to Bagram in uh, 2020 is a lot different. Oh, gosh, yes. Gosh. Yeah, you know. I mean, the last time I was there was 2013, and it's, I mean, I know it's they've, they've drawn down a lot now, but, I mean, I was there in the early days when we uh, we lived in a GP medium tent, you know, mm -hmm. had heater stacks, had um, had the had the poor private doing the uh, pulling out the uh, the big uh, drum from underneath uh -huh. the tree and pouring in the diesel. And, I mean, uh, uh. It, was, it was field conditions. And boy, when we got our first heater stack meal, it was like no more MREs. It was you know reconstituted eggs. It was great. I uh, <laughs> well, you know what? You know what that that the reason that happened to you um, with that is because you spent a good part of your career in the Air Force. And anybody <laughs> in the Air Force knows that the best accommodations and the best food can be found in the Air Force. Well, that and, and Tabasco sauce makes everything better. Yeah, yeah that's a truth. That's for sure. <laughs> so, so yeah, hey, I want to ask you about, so did you, when people say they're, you know, a case manager, I'm going to ask them when they graduated from MOTC or FTC, because if they don't know the answer to that, then they're probably, you know, they're not, sure. they're not telling the truth, sure. which, which unfortunately a lot of people try to pull that off and it's just a quick test. Did you do much of that kind of case work in, in these later fights? No. Um, by this time I, I'd been hired after I, I literally, when I, when I returned back to the States after Budapest, um, I, uh, I transferred over to Air Branch in the okay. special operations group under special activities division. Uh, which that was had already been predetermined. I mean, 9/11 was uh, an unhappy accident that that sort of punctuated the difference between my OMA time as a detailee to now I'm a, I'm a full full fledged blue badge employee of the agency. Oh, wow. So I went over there. I went over there as an air branch officer, as a, as a solo air branch officer, paramilitary officer. Uh, they really rushed me through a lot of the the weapons training and and uh, all this sort of stuff and. I, I thank God I, I paid attention to the old TV shows Combat and, and the John Wayne movie. I'm kidding. But, I mean, a lot of the stuff was sort of like common sense, like people shoot at you, get small. Yeah. You know, and then when they stop, shoot back um, and try to be accurate and things like that. A bush but, uh, will not stop bullets. <laughs> no, it will not. It will not. And, um, but the uh, – so I went over there to, uh, to manage uh, air assets, which – while I'm not sitting there running, you know, going out and recruiting Afghans and, you know, tell me where Osama bin Laden is or anything like that, um, it was still a pretty important job. Uh, we, uh, we had one fixed-wing aircraft and we had uh, our, our one rotary-wing aircraft. That MI-17 is now uh, parked in a place of honor, static display in, in Langley. And huh. um, it's what a great aircraft. Um, so what happened was uh, a few days before Anaconda, the, I'd been there a month, maybe, I don't know, and, and uh, just, you know, working, uh, you know, just putting people out into the field, uh, supporting the uh, deployed teams. The, uh, we were establishing uh, new uh, uh, FOBs, uh, forward operating bases, in either with or without the conjunction of the military. Uh, everything was, I mean, it was, it was the wide open frontier. There was no, no rules. There were no real strategy except hunt Al-Qaeda and the Taliban sort of as an afterthought. Um, so the, uh, the chief of station, um, great officer, who I ran into several other times in my career, um, he, um, he said, hey, let's, let's fly up to Bagram. We've got we to sit down with, with uh, Major General Hagenbach 
and his staff. That was the uh, the 10th Mountain uh, headquarters element that was there. And we're going to get at some briefing. And it was the uh, the go, no-go, the, the final decision brief for Anaconda. So we're sitting in this, you know, GP medium, CPX, CP tent, whatever, you know, and, and it was, you know, with you know, amazing. They still had PowerPoint, even, even in the field like there. Yes. Um, but, How can yeah. you live? Seriously, I mean, if you did not have PowerPoint, can you have a war nowadays? <laughs> yes, you can. Yes, you can. I'm, just, I'm being at facetious. Least, <laughs> at least you, sh- you should be able to. Uh, just wait till the Chinese jam everything. Um, oh, my gosh. But uh, so anyway, so uh, the first slide goes up and it's, you know, the, the title of the briefing it, uh, about exercise anaconda. Now, the, the chief of station, he, um, he knew just enough about the military to get himself in trouble. I mean, he's a great, he was a great intelligence officer, great you know, leader, that sort of thing. But that's why he brought me along because I could speak, you know, DOD and all, all the, you know, the Army dialect, the Air Force dialect, the Marine dialect so on. And uh, I jump up from the peanut gallery way in the back and go, exercise? Dudes, we're not at NTC. What the hell? This is an operation. Let's, let's pull our heads out of the fourth point of contact and let's, let's get with it. And so the chief turns around. He's sitting next to General Hagenbach, just looks at me with daggers. And uh, the chief of staff is like mortified. And, and uh, the chief turns around and goes, Ron, Ron. Inside voice, inside voice. Okay, <laughs> Chief, sorry. <laughs> yeah, Let was... me just give some context for this. When you go into these high-level meetings and you're back in the back row, your job is mostly to shut up and listen and mm-hmm. not contribute. This is I'm assuming this was not a working group. And even in working groups, if you speak out and openly, you have to preface any comment by saying, I know this is a working group, but are we supposed to participate? And then they'll say, oh, of course, of course, we want you to participate. <laughs> and then you roll your hand grenade into the room. And you uh-huh. say things like, exercise, what are we doing here, you know? So well, I, it's, it's bold. You know, you know, the thing is, is I, is, um, I got grumped at by after the, after the briefing by a few of the uh, uh, senior Army officers, uh, some colonels and lieutenant colonels and, and majors and what all. And they're, they're kind of like, eh, you know, you, you shouldn't talk, you know, much, much grumpier and much more uh, – Less eloquent than what you just said, Pete. But uh, they, uh, they, uh, I, I looked at him and I, I did sort of the pat down, going, "Dang, I left my ID card in my other life. You know, I don't yes. work for you." So yeah. you know, and then I, uh. I responded with some things that would make a sailor blush or pay me twenty mm-hmm. bucks. You know, one of the two. So it was, uh, but it was. I, I hear what you're saying, Pete. But I also have learned by that time. I had learned that if if you see something. You know, you got to say something. I mean, you, know, yeah. you don't want to sit there and, and because these leaders are going to make, they could possibly make bad decisions based on bad information. And if you don't say mm-hmm. it, I mean, I have no problem, you know, losing 20 pounds in my rear from a, from a, yeah, rear end, a butt chewing. And uh, so, but, you know, I'm going to, I, I have my personal ethics and integrity that I, I have to be responsible for. Well, I always call that the ground truth. If if you're a leader or senior manager, or whatever, you're not listening to the ground truth, then you're wrong. Oh yeah. You know, exactly. you need to. You may not like it, and you you don't need to base your decision off of it, but at least get some of that ground truth out there, because right. uh, that's where the real power is, and the knowledge, real knowledge, not just bullshit. Yes, man, and 
Hey, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. You're the best, sir. Right. So, yeah. So, uh, so the chief then, you know, uh, I'd come with all my, my sleeping bag and stuff. And uh, he said, you're staying here. And uh, so that, that, of course, made General Hagenbach all sorts of happy. Um, <clears throat> but before we left, um, he, uh, if, if anybody, you know, the, the historians in the audience will know that the uh, anaconda was, you know, it was, it was a very stovepiped operation with uh, mm-hmm. Task Force Bowie and Task Force Dagger and, gosh, I, you know, pick another knife type um, to, uh, to name and the, the cross-coordination between these task forces was um, infrequent, incomplete, uh, and I guess that's about as good as I can say without, you know, getting really upset and mad again. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, the, uh, the chief wanted to talk to, uh, there was a Navy SEAL detachment there, and, uh, you know, we can't have a podcast without talking about the SEALs. Um, and uh, he wanted to talk to the SEALs, so... Uh, I got to exercise my Navy dialect, and I walk up to a, a Navy uh, uh, Master Chief uh, in E9, and I say, hey, Master Chief, uh, which, you know, if you ever know talking to any sailor, um, that gets you a lot of cred right away because, you know, you're not supposed to go up and say, hey, Sarge. Uh, that would, you know, get you to do a lot of burpees and push-ups. The, um, but uh, I, we, uh, my boss needs to talk to your boss. And so he uh, he reaches over and touches this guy whose back is towards us, and turns around. And it's uh, it's uh, Commander 05, uh, Brian Losey, who uh, retired a few years ago as a two-star admiral, and or is it a one-star? He did, I don't know. But but Brian and I had been to the Armed Forces Staff College down in Norfolk in '99. So right then and there, I mean that was that was like old home week, and uh, the. the so whatever the chief wanted, the chief got, and that's the chief was very happy. And my uh, my fit rep from that deployment was was glowing. So uh, it was. Uh, it's it's really a small world factor. Like whenever is. we get into this, you know. It, it sometimes it's not just what you know, but it's it's who you know. And if you don't know them, then how to how to make quick friends and and uh, things like that. So it's, and it's, everybody knows who the asshole in the room is. <laughs> Well, if you're not busting their balls, the they're the asshole. <laughs> well, that was me for a few minutes in that first briefing there, but um, yeah, but you I, know, I made up for it. But yeah, it was it was it was interesting watching uh, watching. Uh, we had a, a single predator at the time, and uh, literally, um, and the way the talk, the tactical operations center was was mm-hmm. set up was very um, not conducive to command and control, but it was very conducive to. It's like the food court at the mall. Everybody could walk through and see. And when, whenever the pred would come up and the camera, and everybody would stop and everybody would gravitate and literally hover, you know, breathe. I mean, here's the general, and they're all sitting in the mm-hmm. little tier of, of, of tables in, in the closest to the screen. But everybody, I mean, all the empty space behind them is just, you know, a, a sea of heads. Everybody like, ooh, mm-hmm. ah, and commenting and, and like, you know, Calling play by play, it was, yeah, it was. Um, it's uh, it it a war is weird nowadays. It is different, but Ron, your life has not always been, you know, chow holes and briefings and everything. You actually were awarded the combat action badge, and you've actually been to places where people could actually really kill you. <laughs> um, and yeah, we know you can get killed in the chow hall and by mortars and everything else. Um, yeah, but you've actually. 
you know, you're very, um, you're one of those guys that just, you could talk about all the briefings all day long, but you've actually been right. beyond briefings and beyond chow hall. So let's talk well, a little bit about that, how that affected sure. you coming, because I know you did tours in Bosnia and, and all over the world, but this is different. This is, you know, we, we did not know what we were getting into. Now we were like, we, we turned into a direct action force. Um, it seemed like we stopped doing direct action for decades. I mean, when was the last time we actually started just really going after it? Um, and this is the first time we are, and you're there. I, I want to talk right. about that. Well, um, gosh, the com- you know, the combat action badge, I mean, you know, my, my, my colleagues in Ground Branch, which I was never in, um, I mean, they were, they were in a lot of troops in contact, um, confrontations, um, gun battles, however you want to describe it, uh, throughout the, the Afghan and, and the Iraq wars, things like that. So, you know, my combat action badge was kind of, you know, it was, it was a great recognition from the Army, but um, I was the only agency officer at, there when it, when, I, when it was. What happened was, this was in, in January 2007, I was on my, gosh, umpteenth tour, and I was by now, I was chief of base at Bagram, go figure, um, with the 10th Mountain again, go figure, it's like we, we have some sort of umbilical relationship, <laughs> but uh, I was, um, I was, we were, we were, um, the, uh, the generals really liked me because I you know, one of the first questions the CG, the commanding general, asked me was, uh, you know, what kind of what kind of an agency officer am I? Because they'd had bad experiences during previous deployments in Iraq or Afghanistan with the agency, and um, and I I understand that. And I told him, I says, well, look, at the time uh, my son was a, a deployed a sailor on a frigate in the Persian Gulf, uh, fighting uh, bog hammers, Iranian bog hammers little speedboats, and my daughter was a corpsman uh, deployed overseas. Um, so I said, look, every one of our soldiers, your soldiers, they're my soldiers, they're American soldiers, and the NATO soldiers too, but mostly the Americans, um, they're my kids too. And I'm going to do, I'm going to, I'm going to go right up to the line, and then I'm going to lean as far over it. I'm going to ask my, uh, one of my, my other uh, agency personnel to grab my, the back of my belt and uh, so I don't, you know, stumble over the line because, you know, the goal is to bring, you know, as many of us back home as, as we can. Um, so the generals appreciated this attitude and, and, you know, all sorts of things occurred. This was towards the end of our, our, our tours there. Um, we were getting ready to rotate out in, in February. And uh, so we, uh, this was part of battlefield circulation and, and these were one of the, areas that we hadn't visited prior to Christmas. And I know it sounds kind of cheesy. Oh gosh, the general is entourage show up and for an hour or three and then, you know, they leave and me and the rest of the platoon are stuck here and in God knows where Afghanistan or Iraq. And, and, but at the same time, it was, uh, it was interesting from an agency point of view because all these places I was going with them were army only. Uh, there were no agency personnel very rarely there were when, and that was always good because then the on on scene agency guys could give a more detailed sit rep situation report on on what was going on. So we were flying that day um, 
we flew to Asadabad, and then uh, we were going to fly to uh, the Korngal outpost, um, which uh, if anybody's you know, watched the movie Restrepo and, and, or the Sebastian, mm-hmm. or the Sebastian Younger Book War, you, you have an idea. I mean, this is all you know, post-Tenth Mountain time, but it gives you an idea. Um, so we got turned away the first time because there was, um, there was a troops in contact in the vicinity. So we, uh, you know, with a general officer on board, uh, they, uh, they really didn't want to risk it. You know, you really, that's, that's not a good OER bullet, you know, but you know, a general officer died under my, you know, while I was flying the helicopter. Um, so we, uh, we went back to Asadabad and waited a, a couple hours. Then we, uh, we, we, we got the clearance to go in. So we, uh, as we were, we were approaching the Korngal, I'd been there a couple times before because we'd occupied the place during Operation Mountain Lion back in March of 06. Um, so I guess the enemy, um, smarter than us, uh, and the Korngal is not the highest peak in the valley. It's you know, basically a, a low peak surrounded by a lot of other higher peaks. Um, the, um, the signal was, we found out later, was when the, when the American helicopter lands, that's when we open fire. So that's an know, easy signal. <laughs> so so the Black Hawk lands. The uh, uh, the, crew, the, crew, the crew chief jumps out. He he opens up the sliding door on the uh, the right side of the aircraft. The uh, the company commander who's in charge of the Cornell outpost, he's there, you know, to shake the hand of of of, of Brigadier General Tata, uh, who's been in the news lately. But we won't talk about that right now because that's not what we're about. And um, the uh, and uh, uh, we can talk that, about him. This is we, uh, we this is the protectors. AJ um, was supposed to be on the, the show, but now his life is a little bit different. So <laughs> exactly, but but uh, and I'll be happy to. Talk. I have the highest res- respect and regard for for for, for Anthony. Um, so, uh, anyways, um, we uh, so we get a so as the as he's shaking the hand. I mean, literally, it's like the 4th of July on the mall in D.C. I mean, RPGs are crisscrossing the sky right over the, the rotor cone of the, of the Black Hawk. And, you know, all sorts of rounds of all various calibers are going everywhere. The helicopter's making a real nice metal sound, you know, metal ding, 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 ding sound. Um, so, you know, the company commander pulls the general off his aides right behind them. And uh, then I'm getting ready to go out, and I turn around, and there's... We have two other strap hangers with us. We have a chaplain and um, a chaplain's aide. <laughs> oh, and a third person, a, a, a female Air Force logistics major who was sort of our, our photo dog for the, uh, you know, whatever, taking, going to take the happy snaps of the visit. And I guess it was her chance to get out and about. Um, and they're all sitting in their, in their, in their troop seats there petrified. I literally have to grab these three one at a time and, and toss them like burlap sacks out of the aircraft because I can hear the, the I can hear the the, the the aviators you know they're starting to apply power because they're gonna they're gonna shoot up like a rocket and get the heck out of dodge but I really I'd really re- rather be on the ground even though I'm an air branch officer I'd like to be on the ground and uh, everything like that. so. Literally, I, I'm the last guy out. I'm literally diving on these bodies as we're getting out. And, uh, and the crew chief is getting ready to jump back in because he's got to close the door. Well, the, the pilot's not waiting. He, he pops the aircraft up, and 
the next popping noise I hear is the, uh, the, the connection from the crew chief's uh, co communications cord wow. popping. <laughs> and so here this guy's, you know, on the ground with us, and he's like, you know, he doesn't know what to do. So we, you know, by this time, uh, they've, we've got the general, and we're all moving off the HLZ, which is quite exposed, and we're going through the HESCO maze to, uh, to get to the CP. And the, uh, they, put, they put those people off somewhere safe. Well, I'm going to hang out with the general because that's who I'm attached to. And, and, uh, and, and, and Tata, he's funny. He's, uh, you know, he's, he's a brigadier general at the time. And he's, you know, he's, he's frustrated because he wants to be in command and he wants to, he wants to lead troops in action. And all he has with him is his Beretta. So he's, he's, you know, he's sitting there doing that little, uh, mm -hmm. while, while, the, while the, the captain is, is fighting his fight, which is important. And, and you know, credit to, credit to Tony for, for doing that. Um, but, uh, yeah, so it was, uh, after a while, you know, it got boring in there. And uh, so I went out and, you know, I'm, I'm an extra gun. And uh, the sergeant major says, I says, what do, what do, what do you need, where do you need me to shoot? He, he just sort of vaguely points in a, in a direction. And I go, okay. And uh, mm -hmm. so I'm, go of course, I'm going, I'm not shooting it. Who am I, what am I, sh you know, I'm, oh, is that a bad tree? I might shoot at that tree. But so I'm basically just sort of panning, you know, my sector of fire for looking for whatever. And I, I don't shoot off around, but I'm like, I'm out there. In the meantime, I'm standing there behind these Hescos and like little firing port notches, whatever. And, mm -hmm. and here, and the RPGs are coming from every direction, so it's it's a 360 attack. And uh, although they're not very they're not very accurate shooters, or either the RPG shooters or the AK-47 guys, but this RPG literally, um, and I have a picture of it, uh, impacts a Hesco maybe two meters away from me. Yeah, and um, so it doesn't explode. It it hadn't traveled far enough to arm, so uh, that's how that's how close they were. And um, so um, I will not confirm or deny that I wet my pants, but uh, it was. You know uh, what I'm. You know I, I wouldn't fault you at all. Absolutely yeah, it, not. Well, I the, that that Air Force Major she did take a picture of it because that was like, you know, I. I it's like my talisman now, you know, it's like whenever I feel like, oh, I, I go, well, if I survive that, I think I can handle just about anything. Uh -huh. But, uh, yeah, so we, anyways, we, uh, we eventually got, uh, they eventually sent in A-10s and Apaches and they, they suppressed the enemy. And, um, it was, it was, you know, it was, um, a, a good fight to, to be out of. And, and the bad thing was, though, that I, you know, that a lot of people forget was, was those soldiers that were there, on on Cornwall, those Tenth Mountain soldiers from Third mm -hmm. Brigade, the Spartan Brigade, um, they uh, they got extended another four to six months. Oh my gosh! Uh, because because uh, the brand new Sec Def um, decided that the One Seventy Third was coming in, and um, with the Eighty Second guys. Uh, taking over the headquarters responsibility at Bagram from the 10th Mountain headquarters. And um, the, uh, so yeah, it was, uh, you know, so they, but the Gates wanted to have uh, 
two brigades now. He wanted, instead of just one combat brigade, he wanted mm-hmm. two combat brigades. So the way to rob Peter and to pay Paul was he extended those guys. And, um, yeah, it, it really, I mean, it was, it's a tribute to the leadership of the, of the company grade officers and at the platoon sergeant yep. level that there wasn't mass desertions or, or, you know, other un, unhappy circumstances in, in those different fobs and cops. And I do want to, um, so I do, one of my friends I was in Iraq with was, uh, Jeff Bond. I think mm-hmm. he was a, yeah, he was an E7 back then because it was 06 and he is now the command sergeant major of the 10th mountain group in Afghanistan right now. So, I mean, it's just continuous cycle. He was 82nd before, um, 101st. Was he 82nd? I think he was, um, 101st. And now he's back. Wow. You know, mm. and you think about it, someone like that 10th mountain group now is like, you know, their whole career has been war. Exactly. You know, like most of us, Pete, were you? Did you go in pre nine eleven or after nine eleven? I was pre nine eleven. I went in ninety four. Yeah, and then um, like me, I was ninety three, and uh, it's so many. It's so weird to think like, you know, you're talking about these company grade officers who probably their whole life has been like, you know, their whole military service has been war, and then they're over there fighting like the real fight on the ground, mm-hmm. while the decision makers are. Not. Not. And, um, yes. <laughs> but the thing is, is having people like you come back who have had decades in service, regardless if it's uh, Air Force in the beginning, because it's like the best service ever, and I kind of wish I did. But no, it's, uh, <laughs> but then later on going to human and doing so much human stuff and getting boots on the ground and uh, getting these stories out there. That's what I love about these podcasts and these shows and everything else. And Pete's the same way. That's one of the reasons we do it. It's just so we could like, it's like that old historian that comes to your unit and be like, Hey, you know, I want to hear your story. And you're like, well, why do you want to hear my story? Because you only hear, if you only hear one part of the story, you're, you're missing out. And I never even would have thought about like, like, you know, like here you guys are like uh flag officers and, and below and everything. Because were you a GS level back then, or I don't know how you worked that. Oh yeah, no, I, we were. Yeah, we used the GS scale. Yeah, I was. Uh, let's see. Well, gosh, I mean, by the time I was at Bagram as chief of base, I was a fourteen. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. So yeah, and then you um you need to hear these stories from everybody. I want to hear about the kids on the ground. I want to hear about the company grade commanders on the ground. I want to hear what is going on. I want to hear about the chaplain that showed up and the major that takes pictures. I, I want to hear all these stories. And if I could podcast like a hundred hours a week, I literally would, because this is almost like a, like a, uh, like a historical chronicle. I don't know, Pete, you probably feel the same way. Yeah, for sure. And then the perspective of understanding some of the things, you know, like that Ron's talking about when you're in these firefights, there's bombs going off all around you. Um, you have to act still, you know, you can't be paralyzed mm-hmm. by fear. And, and and if you're not in these kind of, and a lot of, a lot of people in the military aren't really combatants. Yes. They can point their weapon and shoot at something, maybe do that well, but their job is something that's more administrative or, or logistic based. And so when you have someone who's got experience on the ground and the shooting starts, you need that person to say, not this, that run that way, lay down here, you know, and right. it's almost like a, a bunch of mini commanders all trying to work on the same problem because you're so separated out and it gets so crazy 
it's not like uh, in the olden times where one commander can do things. Like you're trying to sort out yeah. this puzzle in real time. And it's like, get these fuckers off this helicopter and get them back this way. Run through those hesicos. Mm-hmm. Stay low. You know? In the meantime, let's get some rounds going towards the enemy. In the meantime, let's call on these A-10s and these Apaches. And if you don't understand these these points, like we used to get mortared every damn day. Bagram too, all the time. And so you're always, every step, you're thinking, where do I dive if, you know, mortars come in right now? Like right now, where do I go? Because if you're not constantly keeping track of where the cover is, right, mm-hmm. I cost you your life, you know? Yeah, you, I mean, you literally have to have 360 degree situational awareness all the time. And there's, the, you, you know, the, uh, the agency, you know, when I was chief of base, you know, the agency allows alcohol and in the, in the war zones. And, um, and I had to, uh, the tough part about, you know, is you're, you're, you're schmoozing and liaising with, with the DOD, the, the mm-hmm. army guys. And I had not only the 10th Mountain guys I had to, I had to deal with, but I had the Siege of Sodaf guys. At first it was 7th Group under uh, Colonel Ed Reeder, and then later 3rd uh, th- uh, th- uh, Group under Colonel Chris Haas. And they both retired as two-star generals, um, as well as the task force. You know, the, mm-hmm. can't talk about the task force. So, <laughs> yeah. So um, it was... Um, you know, I had a lot of uh, different accounts, so to speak, and uh, a lot of different personalities to balance, uh, yeah. protect, ag- protect agency equities and agency operations, as well as try to facilitate DOD operations and help them. Um, you know, we had FBI guys there, too, that sort of I didn't supervise, but I sort of every once in a while had to go and, and kind of rein them in just a wee bit. Um, but the alcohol part was interesting because, you know, the, the military over there, general order number one, you know, no, no alcohol, uh-huh. no sex, no fun. And um, the, uh, so our, you know, we had a couple young officers of low maturity that um, decided that they were uh. going to uh, imbibe and uh, entice young um, female you know, enlisted people uh, over. Well, those guys were on the next thing screaming home, and because those those poor young specialists and privates, whatever they were, mm-hmm. they, they got punished as well. And that was it was a shame, but you know, and I, I basically told our guys, I says, look, you know, this is what we're going to do. I mean, we had a little small compound next to the bigger Tenth Mountain compound, the headquarters compound, and um, we're uh, we're not going to we're not going to we're not going to drink in the open area. Mm-hmm. Unless you know we, you know, we we can control access because people would sometimes wander through, and last thing you want to do is you know tease tease some poor um, you know major or captain or, or sergeant major who's you know just dying for a beer, and you're sitting there slamming Ugh. back your your combat can of Fosters or some. When I <laughs> I um so <laughs> I was an IRR guy and I got recalled and. Uh, <laughs> I was a special agent. I had like all the facial hair and all the other crap working kind of <laughs> narcotics. And then I, uh, I got thrust back into the infantry world and, uh, luck had luck had it about six, eight months after I, you know, was deployed with a, a national guard unit ended up training with in hurricane Katrina. I ended up with CJ Sodaf in, um, in Iraq as her anti-terrorism dude. Nice. And, uh, it's, uh, 
it's different personalities, man. Especially when oh, you yeah. like, because in Balad, it was you know on the other side you had the task unit doing all their stuff, all the cool guy stuff, and then you had us on the. Um, I was under a Tovo at the time. It was under uh, fifth group and tenth group. Okay. So yeah, man, it's like different worlds, and um, you know, especially when you introduce, you always have support personnel around. You always had the E four, the, the the lower enlisted up to the uh, you know NCOs, everything else, lieutenants, and you th- introduce alcohol into the variable. It's uh, it's different. Yeah, it, it, it kind of sucks. You know, this isn't like, and I can understand why you don't want to have alcohol, but uh, when you're in a position of authority and you have it, and especially with the agency types, it's uh, I can imagine it's different, man. Yeah, we we had we had some officers that were they were you know, I'm a title fifty guy, I don't need to be beholden to you or you know. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I had to uh I had to send one officer uh I wrote him up a pretty strong letter of counseling that was waiting for him when uh, he, he returned home just a wee bit shorter tour. Um <laughs> he, uh, <laughs> because he would go around I mean we you know, we depended on the, the army, the 900 pound gorilla for, for yeah. our, our, our fuel. Um, and you don't want to burn bridges. I mean, it's stupid. Oh, to this, do it this, so I'm, I'm, I'm off doing a special project for the chief of station. Um, uh, totally separate. And I can't talk about it, but uh, I'm gone for a week and I come back and my communicator just kind of grabs me by the shoulders and goes, Oh my God, you know, you've got to fix this, you know, and, and this guy comes bopping in. He's all like, "Oh, you're you're back." I go, "What'd you do? Who'd you, who'd you upset?" And he said, "Oh, nothing. Everything's good." So I start going down the list of you know the the honey do list, if you will. And well, these guys weren't going to do that. And I go, "Say what? Uh, that's not. They were. What'd you do?" So I had to go to each and one of these offices. I had to redo all his work, what or undo his work, which was. Um, basically upsetting everybody and apologizing and uh, on behalf of the agency. And uh, I had him write some letters of apology to some senior officers, some colonels that uh, he, uh, he upset by, you know, you know, his, I think his dad was an admiral or something and I really could care less. Um, the other thing I discovered was um, I'd, uh, I'd gone to the, uh, the agency gift shop at Langley before I left uh, for my tour and I'd, and I replenished this supply on my uh, on my R and R's. Was I, I bought a whole couple sleeves worth of agency coins, um, just generic uh. coins. Yes, the the. I mean, I truly understand now how the Dutch were able to buy Manhattan for twenty four dollars uh-huh. trinkets. But the uh, so uh, I gave out a lot of coins that day to uh, to some people, and of course I would. I would do the whole, you know, coin handshake thing, and, mm-hmm. and they'd look at it, and you know, their eyes get really big, and they light up, and and I go, "Hey guys, now this is a, this is your coin to keep, but it's your get in jail free card, so you really don't want to go be showing it around to everybody, because we're all we're not, you know, we're kind of on the you know on the on the QT here. We're not supposed to be that public, but you know, this is this is a, a token of my esteem and my respect for you guys, and and of course." They were like, yeah, 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 great, yeah. We'll we'll get those we'll get those supply convoys out to out to mm-hmm. your, uh, your 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 fobs right away. Yeah, I had to pull out my Herschel Woody <laughs> Williams Medal of Honor coin. Nice. 
because <laughs> I interviewed him about a month ago, and it's uh. Well, all mine are sort of behind me somewhere. I'm not sure where you're looking. Now, what I'm just saying, like, I have a million coins everywhere, but it's like oh, there's yeah. like two or three coins you always remember, and it's like it's really oh, exactly. I give them all out. I give them all out to non-military people who never uh -huh. have a chance uh -huh. of ever getting a coin. And I'm gonna tell you something. They just they love the hell out of them because they're cool. Yeah, you know? yeah, they are. I mean, they're, they're cool. They're quite creative. I got to get some protectors coins. I like them when they mean something. Like if yeah. I interview someone and they give me a coin, I'm like. I'm always going to remember that interview. Well, you can and either like, do a coin, or the new thing is poker chips. And I don't yeah, know, they might be yeah. a little less expensive. Oh, so. I wish. Uh, you know what? That's a good idea. I'll do a protector <laughs> poker chip. Mm -hmm. I have protectors patches. I give them to everybody because I love patches. Um, where's, where's, oh, I get the virtual patch. I get it because I'm so far away. Oh, uh, but you're in like, and that's one thing I wanted to talk to you about next was, um, so you get out in like what, 2012? 2013. 2013, you end up in where? Iowa, uh, <laughs> Idaho, Idaho, Idaho. Yeah, Idaho. I, mean, I always get those two confused. And then you're like, hey, you know what? I think uh, I think I'll go back to work for a little while. Let's okay, talk about I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> so I do get out in twelve, and, and my wife and I we uh, we move to the Idaho side of Jackson Hole, which is where uh -huh. we can actually we, we can actually afford to buy a place because uh, Jackson Hole is like billionaires and millionaires. Yeah. Oh my gosh! It's, but it was very beautiful. Um, but literally four months after we had got there, we had just finished unpacking and sort of settling into what we thought was our forever home. Um, uh, my good friend, uh, also from 10th Mountain Days, uh, James Terry, uh, who by this time was a three-star general, and he was the uh, ISAF Joint Command commanding, commander and all. He was there with his fifth group out of Germany uh, uh, command team. He uh, literally calls me up and says, "Ron, um, I need you here. I need, I need, I need you to come be on my on my special staff." So, you know, a month later, I'm I'm in Kabul, and um, I'm part of his uh, Commanders Initiative group, which is kind of all the the smart brain people, uh, which was uh, very different. I mean, all my other I hadn't been in DoD since the Air Force, and that was a million years ago. And um, coming from the agency, going overseas to a, uh, as a DOD civilian, because um, I didn't have time to become a contractor, and uh, I had a little bit too much self-respect, um, the uh, was much, much different. The, uh, the DOD was extraordinarily uh, ancient in its processes, uh, paperwork. Yeah. It was, I was, I, it was uh, I will admit that there was a couple times when I was... Uh, Pretty short of temper. And uh, Ron, I think you recall that back in, I think it was at 20, 2007 through 2009, I worked for DOD. <laughs> and it was uh, different. Different is a good word for it. And um, I tell you, man, I, I give you so much kudos for, you know, going back to work and being like, hey, you know what? Um, I do want to, I'm sorry to interrupt you there, but something's right. been like, throughout this whole thing, you have kids. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You're going all over the world. I wanted to talk about, you know, I, I you have a, such great operational experience. I'm going to have you definitely back on um, this new thing I have coming up called Protectors TV. But I do want to talk about family. And a lot of people sure. always want to talk about the action, but I do want to talk about your family and raising kids. And it sounds like they're great kids. And one thing that that really touched me was you're getting rocketed 
you're getting almost killed. Uh, people are shooting at you. And at the time, um, you must have had young kids. Uh, my daughter had graduated from high school in 2000, 99. I can't remember. She's, yeah. Um, but uh, my son was in the, you know, he graduated from high school in 2003. Okay. So, I mean, they were, they were, they were, I mean, they want well to they become service members and they're young and they're like, they're, uh, they could eventually end up in one of those same situations you are. And it, it's got to be like just, because I think about like my, my, it's upsetting. Yeah. Uh, you know, like I, I joke with my son, who's done two uh, two deployments to Iraq now. I, I says, "These are my wars. You go find your own wars." <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'll tell you a family story about how how important family is. And, and um, as an agency guy, even uh, even in OMA it detailed there, I I really didn't advertise where I went to work every morning. Um, my kids thought I still worked at the Pentagon, which is where I I. Um, been detailed from when I was uh, with uh, the DOD, um, and so they uh, they didn't know I was working in the Office of Military Affairs. So 9/11 happens, the uh, the one aircraft crashes into the Pentagon, um, which happened to be where supposedly, according to my my poorly thought out cover story after the fact, where my office was. Obviously, Dad wasn't there. Dad didn't come home, so they were pretty freaked out. Uh, my wife was on a business trip. She was supposed to come back. Our daughter, who was uh, pretty responsible for, uh, I think she was 2019 at the time, um, she was staying there kind of looking over her, her, kid, her kid brother. And uh, so they basically huddled together in the basement of our, of our house um, up in Maryland. Um, just, you know, in a panic, you know, the total unknown. Um, during our, um, our stay in Budapest, we, uh, one of, one of our, the senior State Department guy on our TDY team finally got through to his family down in, uh, in uh, where was it, uh, uh, Fredericksburg, uh, Prince William County, somewhere down there um, off of the 95 corridor. Um, and we all did literally the thing, hey, Here's here's my home phone, and you know, you know just tell you know tell whoever answers uh, that uh, you know that we're okay. So uh, my wife, I, she was on a business trip, and, and her all the flights were grounded. So you know she was stuck. She wasn't. She got home literally a couple days before I did, later on in the week. But uh, so this lady calls up my 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 house, and my daughter answers, and she goes through her spiel, and my daughter's freaked out. She says. She cusses up a storm and hangs up on the <laughs> So I found out about this all much later. But um, so when we did get, when we did fly back to the States on that Saturday or Sunday after uh, 9-11, we, uh, we landed at Andrews. And um, I, I will say that the country I left was not the country I returned to. I mean, they, you could, you could literally sense not, not just on Andrews, but, but, Getting out on the Beltway, driving, just everything was was weird, different. Um, but I get home, and my wife is home by now, and she's trying to explain to the kids that Dad's okay. But I get home, and I literally get, you know, my kids want to divorce me. I mean, they are they are madder than <laughs> madder than mad. At me. So I 
I have to make a value judgment now, so I have to bring them into the circle of trust. And, and Pete, you know, the, the circle of trust, that's that. So I, I sit them down and I let them vent and, you know, verbally abuse me, which they don't get to do anymore. Um, but uh, and then I, I tell them who I'm working for. And I, I just I already tell them, you know, that I'm going to be working in Air Branch. I just forget all about the OMA stuff. I just say I work at the CIA and I'm going to be yeah. TDY a lot. And I'm, I have a really important job. And, and this is something that you absolutely need to keep to yourselves. You can't even share with your closest friends. Um and uh, and my, my daughter was, she was on again, off again with some guy. I said, you can't even tell him. So don't you, you know, this is this is serious, no shit. You know, mm-hmm. don't, don't tell anybody because there are bad people out there. There's bad people here in the States. And they're going to go, they, they, they yeah. might want to hurt you. They might want to hurt mom. They might want to hurt me. And they might want to hurt that, you know, blow up the house. I don't know. I mean, we, so they, they took that very, very seriously. And even to this day, um, you know, my son's walking around Fort Bragg. You know, he's a, he's a platoon sergeant, and and people will read his name tape, and I go, "Hey, you know a guy named Ron?" <laughs> and and he kind of like maybe you know he puts on the you know, <laughs> the little Star Trek shields go up, and <clears throat> and uh, he, he kind of like calls me up and says, "Hey, do you know so and so?" And I go, "I really got to think hard because." so many people I've intersected uh-huh. in the course of this, but um, so it was, it was hard, you know, bring but bringing my family into it was absolutely the right thing to do. Um, my, my wife by this time had retired from the army. So she was, you know, we were, we were good there. She, she, she knew what the scoop was. She knew how important the job was. Uh-huh. And um, I mean, those first three years after nine 11, I think I was home maybe a total of, Three, four months. I mean, the, the total. So it was um, it was literally living out of a out of a go bag for uh, for the first three years. Ron, this has been the longest protectors episode I've ever done. Oops, sorry. <laughs> no, but I'm just saying because I'm like, I want to keep going, and I. Uh, well, we can keep going. You can edit it into two shows. No, we're we're gonna have we're gonna have you back for another show <laughs> because I, I really want to I want to get into. So everybody, we're going to have episode two coming soon, and it's going to be on TV, which is awesome. It's going to be on your Amazon Fire Stick, and it's also going to be on your Roku device. But Ron is going to come back, but because um, I want to, I want to delve deeper. You have decades of experience. I want to get into the family. I want to get into like you know the the laundry list of things I want to get into. That's on my little yellow notebook here. But um, time flies, and I really, you know what? I really appreciate you coming on today, man. I have so much respect for what you've done in your career and what you're going to keep doing, which is keep telling about what you've done in your career, because we need to know these things. Uh, We need this history. We need need ground truth. And Pete, what do you got, brother? I just appreciate, you know, the uh, our lives in so many ways overlap. There's a good chance we've been in the same room, you know, but not known it because we didn't have a need to interact. But I just think it's cool to know that there's another guy like me out there who's – I've met so many people in the service, Ron, right? Like whether I'm supporting or in – and I was better at being with the Army than in it. But just so many people, so <laughs> yeah. many names, it's hard to keep track of all of them. And it's just so impressive to see – 
all these people leaning forward on a problem in the moment, you know, dedicating their lives and their education and then the sacrifice that our kids all make. My goodness. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for doing it. Thanks for helping oh, to yes, you know, absolutely. get us through, get us through these last 20 years. Cause that's, that's not an easy thing to do. Oh, you, everybody's very welcome. Uh, you know, I, I always tell people when they, they do that, thank you for your service thing. Um, I go, well, it was, it was, it was my honor. And it was like, I was, mm-hmm. I was, I mean, it really would have sucked to, you know, served all that time in the, in the military and then later the agency and then not really get to put it to use use it, you know, like yep. up your game to the, the, the senior varsity level. And, uh, but thank you, Jason. I appreciate you having me on. Oh, Ron, you're coming on again. So, Oh boy. Now we're going to have protectors TV, but everybody, thank you for tuning in today. Um, look for more Ron. Definitely look for more Pete. And uh, thank you. You're welcome.